when we gather for worship on Sunday mornings, right? What are the necessities of worship? When we think of the regulative principle and this, this idea of what is prescribed in Scripture is how we are to worship as a people gathered, what do we find? We find the reading of Scripture, the praying of Scripture, the singing of Scripture, the preaching of Scripture, teaching of Scripture, the regulative principle. Those elements must be present, right? And it doesn't tell us that it must be present with a live musician and a guitar and a drum and a smoke machine like some places around, but those elements of singing and teaching and preaching and praying must be present in our worship. And so I find it this morning, I don't know, I've just been thinking about as I was sitting back there, that in this stage of our life as a church, are we faithful, right? And I kind of love the fact that we were standing here singing to recorded music because that's faithfulness. That's faithfulness. That's faithfulness. Right? Gathering, singing, preaching, teaching, praying. It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. This morning, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, right? Our gathering this morning always sometimes seems a little more spring-like, a little more, I don't know, upbeat, a little more cheerful, happy, joyous as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, as we commemorate and celebrate the reason for our faith, the reason for our gathering, the reason for us being here right now. Um, so this morning, with it being Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, we're going to take a very brief pause from the sermon series of John. We're going to pause on John 8, or wherever it was we were, and we're going to read and preach this morning from the book of Micah. The book of Micah, an Old Testament book. You're going to find it <clears throat> towards the end of the Old Testament. I believe Nahum is after it, and I couldn't even tell you, shame on me, what's before it. Jonah. Jonah and Nahum. It's sandwiched in between the two. It's probably a book we don't spend very much time in, especially, I, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon series through the book of Micah, though. Uh, as I was reading this book this week, I think it would be a, a prevalent, a relevant one. It's a timely book for our age. It's a timely book for our day. As I said, I've been Kind of, I read through the whole book this week. I read through it a few times from chapters 1 through chapter 7. And there's a lot of things in the book of Micah that are extremely relevant to today. To our culture at large, to our society, to who we are and where we are as a nation, as a, as a nation state. We find in this book this hope and this promise that is given to a people even when their society is rotting from the inside. We find in this book a hope and a promise even when their society is rotting and it's crumbling. And what was once familiar is no longer familiar. It sounds quite a bit like today. Micah was teaching, pro proclaiming, 
in a time in which Israel, Judah, were crumbling. They were rotting like a wood-framed house that has been not treated and has soaked under water. It's crumbling. It's falling apart. Soon to be non-existent. But the interesting thing about Micah, and I think an important piece of information for us, is the goal, the point of Micah, I don't believe, is the redemption of a society. It's not the redemption of a society. We don't gather as a church hoping to redeem society. We don't gather as a church hoping to redeem and make America great again. It's not why we gather. It's not the mission of the church. I think the purpose of Micah, the purpose of the church gathering and meeting and evangelizing and doing all of those things is, in fact, the redemption of a people. A pretty random, widespread people but a redemption of a specific people, not a society, not the world, not a country. A redemption of a people, a certain specific people that crosses borders and goes and comes from different places. But it's a message of hope. Micah is a message of hope in a time of utter darkness, in a time of utter confusion when nobody knows the truth, when nobody knows what is real and what is wrong or real and false. Nobody knows what is right and what is wrong. Nobody knows what is up and what is down. Nobody knows what a man is or a woman is. Micah's context is not too dissimilar. So our text this morning is going to be the very end of Micah, the last three verses. We're going to spend time kind of traversing the whole book of Micah, but our, our predominant focus is going to be chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. So, go ahead and turn there, if you're not there already. And then we will begin. Okay, Micah 7, 18 to 20. Who is a God like you? I love the beginning. Just the, the very first few words of that portion. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That's good news. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the fact that you have 
pardoned iniquity. That you have passed over transgression for the remnant of your inheritance. Thank you that you do not retain your anger forever and that you do delight in steadfast love. Lord, we thank you that you have compassion upon your people, that you have destroyed our iniquities underfoot, and that you have cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And we thank you that you remember your promises of old, and that you have brought them to pass and will continue to bring them to pass. So Father, this morning, let these words sink deeply into our hearts and minds. May your spirit bring them to the forefront of our thought. Be with us this morning as we continue our worship. May we be faithful in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Micah. If you want to kind of flip back to chapter 1 of Micah, you can. We're not going to spend tons of time there. We're going to read a few portions of Micah to kind of get the point and the gist of, of the last three verses. All right, but, but just some context already, that some, of, some of which I've already said, is Micah came and lived during the 8th century B.C., the 700s, okay, 700s, that's 700 years before the Incarnation. He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. They lived at the same time. They ministered at the same time. If you read uh, Micah 1.1, you get these lists of kings of Judah, right, that, that kind of narrows down the scope for us. That tells us when Isaiah, or I'm sorry, when Micah was working, when he was ministering. Now Micah, he's a, what is called a, a minor prophet compared to versus a major prophet. Now that doesn't mean that Micah's words and his teaching and his, his proclamations were any less important than the major prophet's. When we think of major prophets, we think of what? Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. You think of those as kind of the, the major prophets. And then you've got the minor prophets of, of Jonah and Habakkuk and Nahum and Micah and Malachi and Obadiah and all of those smaller books. Now you see, God's word is God's word. And this is of value, right? We, when we have... When we have some pretty big-name pastors right now who want to kind of detach the Old Testament or kind of remove the Bible from evangelism, this is important. Understanding minor versus major prophet, even though it's just a side note, it's important. They're not a minor prophet because their words are less important. God's word is God's word. And it is authoritative whether it comes out of the mouth of Isaiah or whether it comes out of the mouth of Micah. These words penned by these men in the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are as inerrant whether they were recording the Gospels like Luke was or whether they were writing an epistle like Paul was. God's word, inspired by God's Spirit, is God's word regardless. It is not minor because it is less important. It is minor simply because it is short. Simply because it is short. That is it. 
So we have Micah, one of these minor prophets. Again, this is the 700 BC. Remember, if you remember that time in ancient Israel history, uh, history, they are living in the divided kingdom. They've got Israel in the south with Samaria as the ca- or Israel in the north, excuse me, as Samaria with Samaria as their capital. There is Judah in the south with Jerusalem as the capital. Remember David, his son Solomon, after Solomon's sons, the sons kind of wreaked havoc and destroyed everything and screwed it all up. So we have a north and a south, Samaria, Jerusalem, and these years of slow downfall. Of slow downfall. But the point of Micah is the collapsing of society. Society is crumbling underneath their feet. Soon Israel is going to be wiped off the map. They're not going to exist anymore. The Assyrians will come in and conquer. They will be gone. Then Judah will be the only ones who exist. And then shortly from there, Judah will be wiped off the face of the map. And they will be gone. Not just because of pure happenstance. Not just because of some political movements that are happening on the global stage around the nations. No, it is because of judgment being brought down upon the Israelites for their unfaithfulness. So the book of Micah is a book proclaiming the coming doom of their society. The coming doom of these kingdoms. The coming doom of Samaria and the coming doom of Jerusalem. The physical center of these countries, the spiritual center of these countries. They will collapse. Here is what is recorded in Micah chapter 1, this series of speeches that he gives. This is a series of speeches. Remember, he is a prophet, and remember what a prophet's job is. It's not to predict the future. A prophet's job is to speak God's word. And so, just a little continuation of the context here. Micah delivers this word, and he says this in one chapter, uh, uh, in one, chapter 1, verses 2 to 15. I'll read these quickly. Or I'm sorry, 5, not 15. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And here's the important bit. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The Lord is exiting his throne room. The Lord is coming. He is leaving his temple and he is coming. And here is what he is going to do. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open like wax before the fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. You see, he's coming to bring judgment. He is leaving his throne room and coming, and he is coming to wreak havoc and destruction. Why? All of this, verse 5, all this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel, the north. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Faithlessness. False religion. And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. 
And he goes on. He goes on to pronounce these same judgments upon Jerusalem or similar judgments. You see, when we look at the book of Micah, we see two main chunks. We see chapters 1 to 3. We see chapters 4 to 7. 1 to 3 is the judgment that is coming. Think of the word picture that Micah uses in this chapter. The word picture of the Lord exiting his throne room. Imagine a king leaving his castle, entering into the towns around, not for the sake of celebration, but for the sake of judgment and justice upon guilty parties in his community, in his village, in his whatever. That's the word picture Micah gives. That's what's happening as Jerusalem and Samaria crumble, as they crumble. Now why? What are the specifics to this crumbling? What is the specifics to the unfaithfulness? This is all I promise getting to chapter 7, but it is important for the, the context to be framed. So what is the reasons? Go to chapter 2. Right, Chapter 2 shares with us why these things are happening. What has gone on in Jerusalem and Samaria to bring God out of his throne room for judgment? We have here, chapter 2, a judgment upon those who are oppressing the people. A judgment upon those who have been covering up God's word. Verse 6 in chapter 2 says, "What? do not preach, thus they preach. They're, they're telling them, don't preach. Do not share my word. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will overtake us. You see, there is an oppression that is happening, one of which is the covering up of the truth. There is a, a, a forgetfulness of the needy, a leaving behind of those who need assistance. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet the fields and they seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against the family I am devising disaster for which you cannot remove your, from your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. A pronunciation against those who are oppressing the people. And a part of this oppression, like I said, is a muting of the truth. A proclamation saying, don't share that. That's bad news. We don't need to hear that. Right? Like Grima Wormtongue talking to Theoden, king of, of, of Rohan and Lord of the Rings, whispering these kind of sweet nothings into his ears to make the king believe nothing is wrong around his borders. That is what is happening here. Whispering sweet nothings to fool us into thinking all is good. There is nothing wrong. There is no judgment coming. Don't preach. We don't want to hear that. Chapter 3, we have a pronunciation of judgment upon the kings, the rulers, and the prophets. Why? 
because of the perversion of justice and because of misusing their roles as preachers and proclaimers of God's word. And so you see the crumbling of the people of Samaria, the crumbling of Israel, the crumbling of Judah, is because the crumbling that begins at the top and has worked its way down. Now, as I said before, this is a book that you can all, I I would suggest, taking this week and reading through these seven chapters. Read Read them through at one sitting or two sittings. It's a very relevant book for today. Though, like I said, it is not after the redemption of a society, it's after the redemption of a people. A people. And so we get the good news, right? Because there's always good news. And that's why we're here on this Resurrection Sunday, and we're here every Sunday, because there is a pronunciation of doom and judgment and justice. But there is also good news for those who would hear it. And so the good news, chapters 4 to 7, here is, here is what, what it says. Here is what uh, the author, what Micah, records. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. And guess what? People shall flow to it. So you see... Two kingdoms are going to fall. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be wiped away. But there is a coming of the house of the Lord. And people are going to flow, flock, fly to this kingdom. They're going to fly to this kingdom. I'm listening to a podcast right now. It's called This is History. And it's a It's a podcast about the English dynasty, the English monarchy, starting with the Plantagenets in the 1100s. So you think of the houses of the kings and queens of England, right? You have the Plantagenets, then you have the War of the Roses with the House of Lancaster and the House of York, who are two houses from the Plantagenets. You think of the House of Tudor, who are after that. You think of the House of Windsor, the queen who just died, King Charles now. The houses of these families... These are royal houses. And within these houses are heirs, family members who are inheritors of this last name in this case. But you see, there is coming a house of the Lord. Or there has already come a house of the Lord. And within this house... There is a coming people, and this people are going to flock to this kingdom, and they are going to be gathered from the nations. They are going to come in from their scattering, which chapter 4 talks about. They will be scattered. These scattered people are going to come into the house of the Lord. Then chapter 5 tells us that there will be a leader of this house. Just like King Charles is currently the leader of the house of Windsor, there will be a king a leader of this royal house, five tells us this. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Interesting verbiage. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But listen to this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me. Talking, this is God. 
for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, one who is coming forth is from of old, it's been promised from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. This ingathering. And he shall stand, the king, this leader of the house who was promised of old, this king who is coming, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And these people that are ingathered, brought into the house of God, shall dwell secure. For now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come into the land and treads our high places, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. So you see, there's great judgment coming. But there's also great hope. For these kingdoms of men are crumbling, but the house of the Lord will arise like a mountain taller than any other, and there will be a shepherd king who leads and guides these people in eternal peace within this house of the Lord. Then we get to chapter 6, and chapter 6 gives us this call to repentance. These people are called to repent for their sins and return so they may enter into the house of the Lord. And then we get to our passage today, the final hope, the final hope, the last three verses of this beautiful book. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in the steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. I've already kind of said much of this in our Sunday school class already, but the sermon summary this morning is this, that our final and eternal hope of redemption lies not in what we bring to the table. Our final and eternal hope of redemption lies not in what we bring to the table, but in the character of who God is. And his loving kindness toward his people. You see, we spoke this morning about these different attributes of God and how those attributes of God lead him to his faithful restoration and redemption of people because of who he is. So you see, we bring nothing to our, to our salvation. We bring nothing. But it is the Lord in his character who brings everything. So we see The character of our God. Point one is behold the character of our God. Verse 18. Stand and look at the character of our God. Who is a God like you? What a question. Think about it for a second. Who? Who is a God like you? You see, recall the context of this book. 
as we consider God's character in redemption, as we consider how he brings everything to the table for redemption, consider the context of the book that I just quickly walked through. The moral failings of the people. The moral failings of the leadership, the moral failings of the religious elite, the moral failings of the pastors and of the time, the crumbling of society, the failure of the people. God's judgment, he rests, it rests upon them, right? He's coming out of his throne room to destroy everything, is what one one or one two to seven-ish says. His standards have not been met. And so judgment comes. So judgment comes. So hear this carefully, right? Our hope, our hope is not the redemption of society. It's not the redemption of the U.S. of A. It's not the redemption of our world becoming a better place. Our hope is our redemption. Our hope is our redemption. It is our restoration. And our mission is not the betterment of the world. Though, with, with, with repentance, with revival, those things are going to happen. That is not what we are after. Our hope is our redemption and restoration. And our mission is not the betterment of the world. It is the redemption of sinners. Right? To quote Piper's book about let the nations be glad. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Our mission is the redemption of sinners. Our hope is our redemption and restoration. Our filthy rags that we bear and possess are not unlike those of Israel. I think oftentimes when we sit and do our daily devotions throughout the, the book of maybe First and Second Kings or First and Second Chronicles, or we kind of work through the First and Second Samuel books, and you kind of see just the utter deplorableness of ancient Israel, we think, man. God gave them the law, God gave them Moses, God gave them all of these people, and yet they fail to listen, they fail to do what he's commanded. They are a mess and they are awful people. That's what we think when we read those passages. That's what we think. But the reality is, our guilt is the same as theirs. Because guess what? The moral law, as Romans tells us, has been written upon our hearts in the form of our conscience, and yet we still say, I don't care. It doesn't matter. I do what I want. Our filthy rags are the same filthy rags as these ancient Israelites whose judgment came down upon them. Don't let that pass us by. Because if we don't understand our need for redemption, then we will never grasp the importance. We will never grasp the necessity. Our filthy rags will also one day have judgment and justice meted out upon it if we are not in Christ. And so, Micah asks this question, who is a God like you? Interesting note here. 
the translation of Micah's name is that. Micah means who is a God like you. Micah is being clever here with his wordplay, using his own name to bring a point forward. Who is a God like you? Obviously, this is a rhetorical question, right? There is one answer, one obvious answer, and the reason for asking it in such a way is why. It is to make a point. It is to have a dramatic effect. And what is the answer? Nobody. Who is a God like you? None. There is nobody like you. God's holiness, as I said in Sunday school, his holy otherness. The fact that the attributes he possesses are far and above greater than anything we know. His love is exponentially more indifferent than our love. His grace is exponentially greater than our grace. His mercy is exponentially greater than our mercy. His faithfulness is exponentially greater than our faithfulness. He's incomparable. He's immense. He's perfect. Think of the omnis, the omnipresence, omniscience, all of those things. He is something, he is a being that we are not. And it is out of this character and being that he possesses that we are shown mercy and shown grace. Who is a God like you? There's none. This makes me think of Job. This makes me think of Job, right? He's, he's, he's destroyed. His family is destroyed, his wealth, his inheritance, his possessions are destroyed, and his buddies come and begin asking him questions about, man, you must have really done something wrong. And, and then Job starts to be like, God, what, why? Then Job starts to question God. And what do we get at the end of Job? The most intimidating verses of the scriptures. God comes, and God says to Job, Job, dress for action like a man. Gird up your loins, for I'm going to question you, and you are going to answer me. Imagine being in Job's shoes. Dress for action like a man. Gird up your loins, for I am going to question you, and you will answer me. And then he goes on and asks all of these like existential questions that Job cannot answer. Who put the mountain goat up on the side of the mountain? Who put the snows at the top of the Himalayas? Who stores up the rain that falls every spring? Who floods the Ohio River? Who grows the grass on the ground? He just asks these questions that Job just is stupefied, can't answer. Who is a God like you? That's Micah's point. Who is a God like you? So we have this God of existential greatness of exponential power but also of exponential mercy and love because you see the incongruity here right the perfection of God and then these filthy rags who are facing judgment one cannot be in the presence of the other and the other will not tolerate the presence of the other There's good news. You see, this is why we are here and why we are celebrating 
And the good news is, after Micah says, who is a God like you, he implies some of the things that this great God has done. And the first thing he says is what? Pardoning iniquity. Imagine the iniquity that Israel was possessing. Imagine the iniquity that you yourself harbor. Right? What does iniquity mean? Iniquity means um, like this, this immoral and unfair behavior. This, this gross immorality. Think of the gross immorality that you possess. He pardons iniquity. He pardons iniquity. This is a, a clear link to Exodus 34. If you want to go there, you may. If not, I will read it for you. It is a clear uh, recitation of Exodus 34. Now recall Exodus 34. Uh, they have already left Egypt. They have already, the Exodus has happened. They are out of slavery and bondage. And now they are wandering in the wilderness. They have just received the Ten Commandments. Moses' face is shining. The tablets have been given to him. And here's what, what is said in Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, meaning Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. And now we get again. Notes, lists of God's character, his qualities, who he is. A God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, um, and, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Micah is reciting God's character as he recalls what the Lord does for his people. He is reciting this from Exodus 34, right? He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? So what does this mean? You see, as I said, this grossly unfair or grossly immoral behavior, he pardons it. He pardons it with mercy and grace, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, as Exodus tells us. But... Exodus also points out who will by no means clear the guilty. So, how do we align the two? How does he pardon iniquity and yet by no means clears the guilty? It's interesting. The language here of Micah, the language Micah uses here means a literal lifting up and placing upon another. So when he pardons iniquity, he is literally lifting up the iniquity and placing it upon another. So how does he pardon iniquity? He pardons it not by clearing the guilty and just kind of saying, eh, I'll close my eyes to that. 
He takes the iniquity, he takes the sin, and he places it on somebody else. A literal lifting up and placing upon another. We read Isaiah 53, portions of it already. That's that's what we see in the suffering servant passage. That's what we see in the Gospels. That's what Paul and the other New Testament writers record for us. That's what 2 Corinthians tells us, that the Lord took our iniquity and placed it upon the propitiation, the one who stands in place of. You see, 2 Corinthians, maybe it's not 2 Corinthians, but uses the term propitiation for Jesus. The propitiation, the one who bears the wrath for somebody else. The iniquity was taken off and placed upon another. He passes over their transgression. He passes over their transgression. For the remnant of his inheritance. What is that talking about? Who are the remnant? Right When you hear the word, the remnant... It typically just means somebody who remains. The remnant is someone who remains. Like quite literally, we are the remnant of CFBC. right? The remnant are those who remain. In theological terms, the remnant is those of Israel who continue to maintain their faith and hope in the promises of God. You see, as all of Israel abandons God's law, as all of Israel is in sin and and wasting and rotting, there is a remnant who maintain faith in the promises. A remnant is those who maintain faith and trust and hope in God's promise of a redeeming Messiah. A remnant is those who possess faith in Christ. And he pardons and passes over the iniquity of those who remain faithful. The remnant, you see, they claim, cling, proclaim, hold fast to this Christ, and they become what? A possession of God's. Of his inheritance. You see they belong to him. And he does not retain his anger forever. I love the ESV um, study Bible note. Some of you might even have it sitting there in front of you. For this little verse. And you see the, the note says this. That God's steadfast love. Provides the basis. For why he forgives and relents of his anger. It is out of this steadfast love that he relents. That he forgives. Out of his character, out of who he is, flows compassion and love for his people. Point two, verse 19. God's character, all of these things we've kind of just discussed, that God's God's character gives comfort to his people. God's character gives comfort 
to his people. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our seas into the depths, or all our sins into the depths of the sea. What comfort. We see God as the active agent in verse 18. He is pardoning. He is passing over. He is not retaining his anger. He is delighting in steadfast love. We see God as the active agent. And now in verse 19, we see what God's active agency does for us. He will have compassion on us. One commentator points out that this compassion is, is like the love and care a mother possesses for their child. Think of that. The p- compassion that God possesses for his people is like the compassion that a mother has for her child. When, when our child hurts, we are concerned. When our child is in need, we are trying to meet it. When our child is sick, we want to help them, heal them, find a solution. When our child is is lost and and, and not following the way, we, we want to try and lead them and shepherd them and guide them. When birthdays and holidays come, we want to give them good gifts. We want to show them our love for them by the goodness of what we give them. When they're hungry... When they're cold, we want to provide food. We want to provide shelter. This is the compassion that the Lord has for his people. You see, COVID-19 has, has shaken the whole world, right? It's been, I think, what, 45, 50 months of COVID-19. It has shaped everything we know currently. Think of the, the bubonic plague Around, actually around the time of the Plantagenets, ironically enough, wiped out half of the population of Europe. But you see, there's a, an ailment, a sickness, that won't just wipe out half of the population, it will wipe out the entirety. None will escape the death and judgment of our God. Right? But it is in his compassion that he provides a remedy It is in his compassion that he provides the answer, that he provides what we need. And so we see this active agency, God's pardoning, God's passing over, God's patience, God's delight in his love. And what is the cause? What is the result? He has compassion and care. For his inheritance. For his children. And what does he do? He actively destroys their sin. What does it say? He will tread our iniquities underfoot. It's not like, you know, like you have a nice white shirt that you really enjoy and you spilled something on it. So you wash it. But it still has the stain. It's clean, but it's got the stain in it. See, that's, that's not this. You see, the, the shirt was cleaned, but also the stain was removed. There is a complete and total 
removal of our sin. Now we may not and we will not know that complete and total removal. There's no perfection here in this world, but it's what awaits. It's what awaits as our Lord and God actively, actively removes the stains of our sin. The stains of our guilt. The stains of our regret from our past life. You see, he tramples our transgressions underfoot. He destroys them and he removes them. He doesn't just pass them over and overlook them. He doesn't just do those things. In fact, he doesn't overlook them at all. He meets out judgment. But he destroys. He destroys our sin. He tramples it underfoot. And then, not only that, not only does he trample it underfoot where we can still see it laying on the ground destroyed, but once it's trampled, what does he do? He casts our sin into the depths of the sea. Consider what that means. What is the one place still unexplored on this planet? The utter depths of the ocean. Unexplored. We don't know anything about it. It is complete and total mystery. And that is where he dumps and rids us of our sin. It goes and it's gone and it's lost and it's forever been dealt with. It is removed from us. As far as the east is from the west, to quote another Bible passage, it is removed from us. I was reading a, this is a little lame, but I was reading a, a little a little book with students in years past about the Loch Ness Monster. And we were reading about the Loch Ness in, in Scotland. And even just the, the lake, that lake alone, the utter depths of that lake have not been explored. That's just a lake. They don't know what's at the very bottom of it. There's not equipment to go and do that. That's just a lake. Imagine the oceans and the seas, the unexplored depths that are there, and it is into these places of unknown that are unreachable. God removes, casts all our sins into the depths of the sea. He has taken taken our transgression. He has placed it on another one. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, he has taken our sin, placed it upon himself, the God-man, Jesus. He has taken our own sin and shame. You see, to go back to this kind of English monarchy idea, God is king. He is sovereign. He is the creator. He is king. And we are all subjects. We are all subjects to this king. And we are subjects who have rebelled against this king. Tried to create our own many kingdoms. Taking control out of his hands. 
and bringing them into our hands, bringing control into our hands. And yet still, the king takes the punishment upon himself to fix the treason of his people. How unheard of. Who is a God like you? And finally, God's character gives final hope to God's people. God's character gives a final hope to God's people. Verse 20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. We were doing a little Bible devotional last night. We were reading and we were kind of going through some of these these ideas. Well, one of, one of the big ideas that came out of this devotional last night is that God is a promise keeper. He keeps his promises. You see, when we think of Abraham and the covenant that was made in, uh, I'm sorry, in Genesis 15, as the animals are slaughtered, Abraham is sleeping and he has this vision in his sleep. The animals are slaughtered. And who walks down the middle of the slaughtered animals that have been cut in half? God does. What does that mean? It means God is the one who must uphold the covenant that is made. He is the active agent. The burden is upon him to uphold his covenant. And he is the covenant keeper. And what Micah points out here, when he speaks of Jacob, he speaks of Abraham, he speaks of this patriarch, the, the figurehead, the, these three men of, of, of ancient Israel, what he's saying is, I have not forgotten my covenant. I have not forgotten my covenant. And I will bring my covenant to pass, and I will maintain my promises. And so we have this good news of Micah 5, where this man, this king from Bethlehem, comes out and leads and shepherds as a shepherd king. And we have these passages of Isaiah 53 in which the shepherd king is also the suffering servant who takes the wrath of God upon himself and then receives glory because of it. You see, God, God didn't just decide to fix everything once it all fell apart. He didn't just say, huh, that got screwed up. Now i got to backtrack and figure out an angle to fix it. These were eternal plans and promises. These were eternal plans and promises. That were born out of God's character. They were set forth by God's decree. And they were carried out by God himself. He knew. He knew Genesis 3 would happen. He knew Genesis 3 would happen. And yet, he sets forth on this rescue mission to redeem a people, or as to use the language of, of Micah, for the remnant of his inheritance, to bring them in. Right? We see this redemption and restoration of a people whose hearts are rotting and crumbling. And they are restored. 
The rot is trampled underfoot. The iniquity is transferred to another. The anger is relented. And the hope is given. We read Luke 23 a moment ago. After we sing our next song, we're going to read Luke 24, which I had in my notes to read 53, Luke 23, Luke 24, and they're all here. But we see as Jesus is on the road to Emmaus that he illuminates the hearts and minds of those whom he is speaking with to the fact that he is the shepherd king of Micah, that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, that he is the life giver of Ezekiel in the valley of the dry bones. You see, our final hope, our only hope, our certain restoration on this Resurrection Sunday is only found in this Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, for your grace, your steadfast love. May we cling to it. May we follow it. May we hold fast in great hope to your promises. Enable us by your spirit to do these things. In Jesus' name, amen.